you would turn in your Bibles, if you have one, um, to Exodus chapter 20. It's, we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 11 today. We're primarily going to be taking a look at the first four verses, because that's about as far as I can get. So if you would all please stand, uh, we'll read the scriptures, and then we'll go back into prayer, just to really take a look at what it is we have for us today. It's taken us a little while to get here, but here we are in, in uh, the book of Exodus at the base of Mount Sinai, and this is what the Lord said to Moses. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do not, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. Just one more brief prayer, if we could. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray once again that you would make our hearts tender to your word. That our minds will be open to what it is you have before us. That as we face the challenge of what it really means to have the living law within us through the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus, our Lord. Help us to find what it is the scriptures tell us. Help us to see what it is the intent is. Change our hearts, Lord. Make us more as the image bearers that you always created us to be. Give us the strength and the ability to do so. And pray that you would anoint the words that you have given this, this week, that I would just say the things that you have placed upon my heart to say, Lord, and that we would all receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Title the message this week, um, I Am the Lord. Uh, trying to figure out how it was, you know, it took us two, two, three weeks, I think it was, for us to get to where it was we were going to start in this series called Ten. Um, and here we are. It's taken us a little while to get here. I think it was necessary and good for us to just study in Matthew and try and understand the concepts of what it looks like to have a healthy view of the law. Because there are two ways in which people look at the Old Testament and the law. They look at it as though Jesus is our rest, Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our King, and therefore we are free to do whatever we wish because Jesus is Lord. And while to some extent that is correct, that is incorrect, um, that, is, that just leads us to license and to do whatever we want without any boundaries whatsoever. The other way to look at the law is to continue to hold on to it in the way in which the Pharisees and, the, and what we know to be the legalists did. They felt that by observing the law itself was what made God happy and what saved us. That was the other extreme. Both of those ends of that spectrum are incorrect. So what we're trying to do as we walk through this series, most especially for those of you who are new here, um, we have a booklet if you need one. Just let us know and we'll get it to you. That gives the themes of this. What we're trying to establish here is the importance of the law within our lives as Christians. 
how it works itself out and why that is our reference point and why that is our story. So what I want us to primarily look at today as we enter into the scriptures is what does it mean to have no other God before him? He said, I am the Lord. What does it mean to have no other God before him? Can we really live like that as human beings in a culture such as ours? And if so, how does that work itself out and how does that play out as we go from day to day and we deal with the things that we deal with? You see, in beginning our journey through the Ten Commandments, it's good to understand how it is they relate within the world in which we live. At least a superficial understanding of how they relate to the world in which we live is a good place to start because some of the questions that I am challenged with by friends of mine, most especially those who are actively engaged with unsaved people outside of the church, trying to have conversations with them, is how do we confront the subjective truth that prevails within our society and our culture today? How do we bring answer to that when everything and nothing is true? These are valid and legitimate questions and, and concerns on how to engage unchurched people. In fact, it's gotten to the point where some of the millennials within the church question that very notion that there is an absolute truth anyway. So even within the church, because of poor teaching or no teaching whatsoever, we find ourselves in places where we wonder how or if any of this really even matters anymore. See, if we're going to be missional and if we're going to be outward acting, which is what we are called to be, we are never called to be comfortable. If we are going to be missional and outward acting, we have to answer these kinds of questions because these are the kinds of questions that are being asked. You see, these types of questions don't matter at all for us if we just want to be a Sunday gathering here within these four walls and we don't want anyone to show up other than our nice little comfortable people group. Those questions are not good to have if that's how we want to be. If we want to be very self-centered as individuals and as a church and reflective kind of group and atmosphere um, and just be safe in here, which a lot of churches are. I'll talk about that in a little bit. We discovered that when I was at district council. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be that way. See, Sunday mornings are a time of reflection. They're a time of discipleship. They're a time of learning. They're a time where we come together and we gather at many different levels with kids out back, the wee ones in the nursery, myself up here in the front, where we are primarily being discipled and we are being equipped one to another as community of believers and prepared to live in the world as image bearers as we go out of here because we don't stay here. How do we live out God's story before everybody else as his image bearers? Being salt and light, we talked about, in this world means doing so outside of the safety of your home or these four walls. That's why Jesus said we are to be salt and we are light. Wrestling through these hard questions that always present themselves. These don't just kind of show up every once in a while. These present themselves all the time from within our culture. That is our call to answer those questions. We are to be prepared, as Peter tells us in his first letter, verse 15 in chapter 3. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as what? Holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Now, I mean, there's some people out there with Bibles as big as the one I brought in today. I probably could have drove it down here. It was so big, smacking people on the side of the head, telling them that that's how we find Jesus. I find it grossly ineffective and ridiculous, but if that's what people want to do, they can. They're not going to have a whole lot of people following them. They're probably going to be laying on the ground with a headache. But what forms the basis for these answers that Peter tells us? Where do they start? How do we come up with the answers for the questions that are being asked? Because we're not called to just pull them out of the air or sit around and give our opinion on what we think things are and how they ought to be responded to. They ultimately come from guess where? 
you can find them rooted within scripture, but specifically in the 10 commandments. Why we believe what we believe, how we believe what we believe, how it is we respond and react to everybody. They become our reference point. These are our reference point. If we throw these out, we have nowhere to go. And understanding them as well in relation to our own personal hearts, as Peter tells us, also helps us to focus and to respond to people in a way that glorifies God and minimizes me. That glorifies God and minimizes you when we respond in that way. Because it's not that we don't have the answers. It's not that the church does not have the answers. Rather, part of the struggle that we have is that we are trying to answer our own questions for unbelievers, for some reason thinking that they have the same questions that we do. Nine out of ten times they don't. Or answering questions that aren't even being asked, thinking that they're relevant within the culture. And they're not even questions being asked, but we spend a lot of time trying to answer them. We are called to engage our culture wherever you are with whomever you are in contact with in a way that brings Jesus Christ to the front and us to the back. Thus honoring him in our hearts and then with the gentleness and respect that we are asked to do, answering the questions that are asked by non-believers and unbelievers. Then we can put ourselves in a position to do that. Never make an assumption in your walk with the Lord that you know what the person you are speaking to needs. Don't ever make the assumption that you know what they want or what they're going through or what they've been dealing with. Never make that assumption. It's a mistake many of us pastors make, and quite frankly, it is the mistake that the majority of people who sit in churches on Sunday make as well. We make a lot of assumptions and we take off down roads and we never get to the point where we're answering the questions that people are asking and ministering to broken hearts that need Jesus because we're too busy trying to assume we know what they need and what they want. See, if we are to honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, if we are to understand his grace toward us as his people, if we are to understand that, we also, at that point, have an easier time in valuing every single human being that comes across our path, irrespective of what their status is, what their station in life is, what their lifestyle choices are, what their situation is, or where they come from. If we fully understand the grace that God has poured out upon us, it makes it much easier for us to understand other people and pour grace out upon them. See, this is in part is what I heard this past week at district council. Many of you know I went over and Pastor Marquardt, our district superintendent, spoke on how it is we can engage our culture and love other sinners as Jesus loves them. His words were how it is we can begin to love sinners again. My contention is, is that I'm a sinner you're a sinner. We're all just simply saved by grace. And the minute we can identify that, it's very easy to engage sinners because we are one. We just happen to be saved by grace. Now, I personally found that the message itself wasn't all that radical, but there were other pastors in listening to them uh, from around the district and talking to them and hearing what they had to say. They were incredibly unsettled on how to bring that back to their people. In fact, they were you know, wanting to have Pastor Marquardt come because it would be easier for him to bring that. Always throw the super under the bus. <laughs> you see, for them, the message that Dennis brought meant something other than what they wanted to do. They were confronted with what pastors said were country club churches, very inward focused and wanting nothing to do with how it is we reach the world and be missional. 
And that was a very radical message for a lot of people and it unsettled their hearts. I, I don't find it very unsettling and rattling to me. Um, I find it very difficult because we are up against that wall where most Christians, that's how we operate. Um, it's not what we're called to be. Being comfortable within the church building and making sure it is the place we gather and understand just how bad the world is and how we need to somehow steer clear of the world and stay uncontaminated is not the call that God has placed upon our lives. It's just simply not the call that God has placed upon our lives. And that can be very unsettling for some people. But it's also wrong to have that mindset. I get to stand before you very vulnerable this morning as we take a look at this word because you you can sit in your pews or you can get up and you can go home or you can do whatever. But here I am having gone through this and wrestled through this and knowing what my weaknesses are, knowing what my struggles are, knowing what my fears are. I don't have the opportunity to, to not be in front and have this conversation with people. But here it is right here. See, there's an analogy that I heard that makes perfect sense to me that I wrestled through with a friend of mine this week. We are called to be boats on the water, making sure the water doesn't get in the boat. But a boat serves absolutely no purpose if it stays in dry dock, does it? The boat needs to be on the water. We cannot be fishers of men if we are not on the water, in the boat. We have to be there. See, too often we are very afraid of getting wet or falling into the water and becoming contaminated like everybody else. But we are salt and we are light. And that means going into the world just as that, salt and light, living as Jesus did among those who did not know him and who were lost. Wherever that finds you, each and every one of you are different. You have a different role in life than I do. So if we patch or paint a wide swath on how this is supposed to work, we're missing the boat. I mean, I'm looking at... However many people are here, each and every one of you are different, which means you are gifted differently, which means you will encounter and engage people differently, and you will deal with different issues. Don't try to make everybody just like you. It'd be awful if this was a room full of people like me. I could barely handle it standing myself most days. I wouldn't want a room full of all of you just like me. It's not okay. You're uniquely gifted. We have to go into the world of salt and light, love people as Jesus does, even in the life that they live. Why? Because he loved them and loves them still in spite of what they do. Just like he loved you and me in spite of what we did, in spite of the fact that we are sinners and we miss the mark every day, he still loves us. He won't leave us that way, but he loves us in spite of that. That is what grace is. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Don't charge for it because it cost Jesus his life for you to have it for free. Now, when we hold on to that truth and how that works itself out in your life, in this book here, a beautiful story of salvation emerges. The greatest rescue mission ever to be had by humanity is found in these 66 books. If we look at it that way, and that's the way I contend we need to. We are to be called, or we are called to be on task and to be missional people in this world. What does that mean? I say it over and over again, and I will continue to say it over and over again. For my benefit and yours, we love God, we love people, we tell them why. It's real simple. Why? Because in Jesus, God has restored that communion with him that was broken in the garden and community with one another 
which was also broken in the garden. That means we can all live now the way we're supposed to, loving God, loving all people, and then telling anyone who asks why in a gentle and patient manner in the way in which Peter tells us. You see, the Ten Commandments form the basis for us regarding how it is we are to live, to throw them out the window and to say that because Jesus died and fulfilled the law, we can do what we want is not biblical. The law is good and it is perfect because it is God's law. How we work that out in our life in and through Jesus is critical. You see, they drive us not only to live in a certain way in this world, but also they provide the basis for conversation for the people that we encounter within the culture, which needs a foundation to stand on. Our culture no longer has a foundation to stand on. The beauty of the Bible is that it is unchanging and unshifting. And again, the unchanging story of God, the beautiful story that he paints within the pages of his word in scripture, values every single human being. And it is the foundation and the basis by which we approach every human being. If we don't approach them that way, we have to have a conversation with ourselves and the Lord. You see, so when you believe nothing like the culture does, as much as it does, you discover that actually in believing nothing, you don't end up believing nothing. You believe anything. And you believe everything. Desperately trying to figure out why it is we are here. Why we even exist on this little planet in the middle of this universe. Does any of this really matter to anybody? And most importantly, what does it mean to be human? And out of that question, do I as a human being have any value at all? Now, these are all questions that are being asked by this world. You don't think so? Watch the news. This is why people struggle with identity, with all kinds of different things going on. When we have no foundation, we try to create a story every single day that makes sense of the world in which we live in. This book right here is the most beautiful story ever given. Unchanging, stubborn, as all get out but it values every human being ever to walk the face of this planet. And these are all questions that our culture continually asks, even if they don't verbalize it. Our duty as God's people in God's world is to do our absolute best as salt and as light in this world as we can in Christ to share these things. Because God says this in Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 2, he says, I am a Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we talked about this a little bit over the year because you just can't get away from his story that goes all over the place. He says this, it is I who brought you to freedom. I brought you out of Egypt. Now at the base of Mount Sinai, where the very presence of the God of the universe has settled himself and he has his people, he's now giving his people their identity. The Ten Commandments are how they are supposed to live, not in order to be God's people, but because they are his people. These came after. This was the wrestling that Paul had. Remember always that freedom comes first, identity comes second, and then lastly, once we have our freedom and we know what our identity is, then we're put on mission. Then we are put on mission. See, Jesus paid for your freedom with the cross paid for my freedom with the cross. The Holy Spirit in you defines your identity. And then we are put into, on mission. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, go into all the world. You see, God here at Sinai is giving them their identity, setting them apart for him 
and for his purposes. Not so that they can hide away and be thankful that he saved him. No, no. See, from the very beginning, Isaiah says in 42 and verse 6, he says this, I'm the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, I've taken you by the hand and I keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Their identity was given and their mission was to be a light to the world. They turned that light inward, you see. Rather, they were supposed to be on mission in the world as salt and light. This wasn't a change of plans. It was always the intention from the beginning. When these were given, in order to be salt and light, this is how you live. This is what you do. This is how you engage with people. This is how we talk with folks. Makes perfect sense, then, that the first commands that he gives deal with the very first sin, which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. You see, the first three commands focus on proper worship of our Creator proper worship of our creator the who the how and the why and this has to be understood first in order for us to understand anything else and you will find me repeating these verses over and over again today maybe it was just for me because i had to get them into my dim-witted little head but i hope it's beneficial to you as we take a look at verses one and two and we look at the who again god spoke all these words saying i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery In other words, I called you out. You didn't come looking for me. I called you out. I saved you. I brought you here. I freed you from the bondage that you're in. You see, the God of creation is fulfilling right here his covenantal promises that he gave to Abraham. He said he would do this. God is faithful. And even in the middle of a people who grumble, in the middle of a people who complain and whine about the amount of sand in the desert, fuss about the food that they have and don't have because McDonald's apparently wasn't open, about the drink that they can't have. Moses has got to whack a rock in order for it to split so they can get water, their clothes, their comfort, you know, all of the good quote-unquote things they had back in the day in Egypt that were never really there. In the midst of all of that, God calls them. And says, I am your God. I have freed you. And it's interesting to note when we take a look at this. That God redirects them. He redirects them into proper worship and proper thought. And that thought is that the idol of self is the worst of all. That inward looking. That inward reflecting me. Why? Because it is tended to be the one that is ignored the most. Our worst enemy is the one that looks at us in the mirror in the morning. I didn't like that when I heard that this week, but it struck me. And it's true. I went back and I looked at this, and that's really what's going on as you write this. We tend to ignore that the idol of self is the worst because that's what got Eve and her foolish husband Adam in trouble. Think about that. They wanted what they wanted, and they replaced God with an idol themselves and their personal desires. And it fractured communion, and it broke community. See, sin, as I've said over this four months, is that it always works itself out in idolatry. It always works itself out in idolatry. Something takes God's rightful place in our life. That then becomes our object of worship, and we focus upon that. Sometimes it's a very subtle thing, Even something which on the surface may seem good. doesn't have to be really bad. It can actually be something that's good. 
but it undermines our heart's proper worship and it subverts our focus on who it is is really king. So it makes perfect sense that these three commands relating to communion with God have to do with the proper worship of him. He has to fix that first. If we don't have proper communion with God, we will never have proper community with one another. It has to work that way. You see, along with the death, the self-idolizing and anything which gets in the way, that's what's being laid forth here. You have to worship in a certain way. Then we have the command at the end of all this to rest, and that's something that we're going to spend time on, just not this morning. But I want you to know very quickly that the Sabbath also is a dying to self. It's a setting aside a particular time that we have, and we'll talk about that, but a particular time that we have set aside and devoted wholly to God from the things that we do in order that we can recognize that the things that we are gifted in doing, the things that we have, and all of the stuff, families included, are a gift from him alone. And when we spend far too much time running around and focusing on our stuff and our things and all this stuff, and I am guilty of this, I confess this before you, I struggle with sitting down and taking some quiet time and saying that the world is not going to end if I, you know, it's just ridiculous. It's how easy it is we get into this pattern, you see, because we think we're the ones holding it all together, that we're captain of our own ship. How does that work for us the moment something goes sideways? We realize very quickly that we are not captain of our own ship and we're done for. This is why God says take a Sabbath day to realign who you are so that you can worship properly, so that I can worship properly. Now, what that really means is that you and I end up being on the throne of our hearts if we don't do these things and not God, idolatry. We become our own God. Now, how does that work itself out? Because that's number two. We've got the who. We need to worship God, and we need to make sure he's got his rightful place. The how is that no other gods before me and no carved images. Because we find here that God is a very jealous God, and he's jealous for a reason. He's very jealous because when we put things before him, our lives become very out of balance and he becomes jealous for that. And for a few reasons, not because he's just this angry, malevolent dude who wants to shoot lightning bolts from the sky. No, not at all. One of them that he is concerned with is that minimizing him devalues us as his image bearers. When we minimize him in our lives, we are devaluing ourselves. Anything we do that is sinful separates us from God. So this is why iniquity and love is all addressed when his jealousy is aroused. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. That's very clear. In the pantheon of gods that they were dealing with in the time of Moses, you could always find something to worship. Most especially in Egypt, the country they came from, the sun, the moon, the stars, the cat, the dog, the frog, the fly, whatever. You name it. You want to know at least nine of them? Read the plagues. At some level, those things were items of worship that were being mocked in a very clear way by the God who created the very things that they were worshiping. And all of them were worshipped in a bizarre manner in order to give explanation to the existence of humanity and just how it is we arrived on this planet. That's why, that's why gods and idols are created. That's it. To try and somehow give us something to worship because we're empty inside. You see, but the problem is, is they were also feared in a very unhealthy way. Because the thought was is that we have to please these gods or they're going to smite us or send us drought and all of that kind of nonsense. It's not the way it was. You see, realizing in all of the midst of this, that an unhealthy view and an understanding of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, puts us into this very mindset. We can very unintentionally, as God's people, begin to think this way. 
making him nothing more than another created God instead of the Lord who created everything. If we aren't careful, we can put him in the wrong place. Now, our idols today dress themselves up quite differently, but they're the same in the end. I like to tell people that you can put a tuxedo on a goat, but honey, it's still just a goat. <laughs> just has a tuxedo on. We look at Hollywood, we look at sports, we look at fame, we look at food, we look at our homes, we look at our stuff. All these things we worship in relation to how we are doing as compared to the person down the street. This is how it all works itself out. Self, once again. I need to have that car that sister so-and-so has. I want to be able to go to that school that that boy went to. I want to play that sport. I want to do this. I want to do that. All of the things we try to amass. Self. It's really been the same forever. We haven't invented anything new. We haven't invented anything at all new. As I've said before, these three things that have always worked themselves out in some level, money, sex, power, always seem to be the three that drive humanity. Be slow to think and say, yep, that's right. This world has gotten twisted. Remember, let's always look at ourselves first. Let's always look at ourselves first. You see, the names which these three have gone by in the past are Mammon, Aphrodite, and Mars. Different name, same goat, same thing. So reflect for a moment. Here's a challenge as we continue on this morning. If you have one of these, I want you to reflect for a moment. I want you to write down either now or at some point today what may very well be sitting in line before God in your heart. Be courageous enough and bold enough to do that. Understand that there are things that if we aren't careful get in the way. Be self-reflective. Ask the Lord where he has been replaced in your life. I know what mine are. I got them written down on my journal at home and I pray about them every day because I know how quickly they can take over. What are yours? Honestly ask yourself that question because we have to be very careful. I have to be very careful to submit them to the headship of Jesus or they will very easily become the things that we bow down to and that rule our lives. Thank God every day, every single day for a wife within my relationship who reminds me of the things and the areas that I come up short and settles me when I get unsettled. She helps me redirect what it is the Lord has said, what it is I have been called to do, what it is we are supposed to be like. She knows me better than anyone. So if your wife looks at you or your husband looks at you and is trying in a biblical way to help you, be self-reflective. Enough on that. You see, because idols, there's a key way to know what they are in your life as you think about this. Anything which controls you, dictates how you respond, and something which absorbs an unhealthy amount of your time. We've already talked about a few of them. Sports, work, computer, internet surfing, money, improper viewing and usage of the internet. You know, I think you can all probably figure that one out. Um, typically a male issue. Very real nonetheless. Food. Coveting other things and positions. I could continue on and on and on, but you know what your hearts are. You know what your hearts are. Anything like that is an idol. Submit it to him. Pray that God will reveal it to you and begin to submit it to him and bring it back to its proper place. Bring it back to its proper place. Remember, we're told here that he is a jealous God who wants the absolute best for you 
as his image bearer. And that's why he's jealous. He will not contend with anything that takes his place. Ever. Not in my life and not in yours. The enemy himself wants nothing more than to usurp the throne in your heart as he did with Adam and Eve by marring the image and separating us in communion with God and community with one another. He comes to steal, he comes to kill, he comes to destroy. And if we aren't careful, we will allow that to happen. But God desires that you find your completeness in him and in him alone. I am not a complete human being because I married Lisa. I'm a better human being, but I am not a complete human being. I need Jesus more than I need my wife, but my wife brings balance. If I put her in his place, she's my idol. And whenever we do that, we're wrong and we're out of balance and we're unhealthy and it becomes unhelpful. And then our marriage gets skewed. And I find nine out of 10 times, that's what happens in my home. When I am depending upon her in an improper way, or I'm upset and I'm uneasy. Think on these things. All of your value, all of your humanness is found in Christ alone. Verses 4 through 6 continue with how it is we are drawn away from that perfection found in him, as well as God's response to that. He says, you shall not make for yourself the carnage image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's comforting. And I don't say that jokingly. That's comforting for us. You see, because that defines the culture today as much as it defined the culture back then. Because it's very clear that they had these idols. They created a deity of some creature, of something or whatever. Then they carved that image and they built a temple for it. And the last thing they would do in that temple is they'd take that image and they'd set it up on the altar. And then they'd start worshiping that image of whatever it was they carved. A demented twisting in very backwards way of worship, if we're honest. It is still how it is done. But I want to say something to you. In God's story, act one of creation, what the world has done because of the enemy is they have twisted the good story that God has given us. What did God do when you read the creation story? Exactly that. He brought the universe into existence, and within that universe, he placed the earth. And then what was the last thing he did before he rested? What was it he did? He created you. He created me. Genesis 127, 126. In his image, he created male and female both. He created them and then he put them where? In the garden. That is God's good creation story. He said, I created you for communion with me, community with each other, be fruitful and multiply. And oh yeah, by the way, take care of my good creation. That's what's going on in the creation story. Every other creation story is nothing more than a weak imitation of what God has already given us in scriptures. This is why we don't have the carved images and we don't do all these things. As we close, and I can have the worship team come up because we could go on forever and I know that we can't. I want to remind you as we get ready to close this morning, God, here in the book of Exodus, 
is reaffirming for us in a beautiful way that we bear his image. He took his people out of Egypt and he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai to give them their new identity. They have been slaves for 450 plus years. It was critical that they got their identity and who they were. He was reaffirming and still reaffirms that we bear his image and we are to be his reflection in this world. Are we doing that? Are we being salt? Are we being light? Because anything that's carved, created, or put in our hearts which violates that image that God has created in us is idolatry, whatever that looks like. So as I say, we need to be self-reflective. We need to be self-reflective. I can always find someone worse than me. I can always find someone worse than me. But there's a problem with that. It's a twofold problem. I also find someone who's better than me. And then within that, finding someone who's better than me, I begin to belittle the person who I'm better than in order to make myself feel even better. And the person who is better than me, I then begin to put them down and attack them in order that they aren't where they're supposed to be and then I can feel better about myself and lift myself up a little higher. That's if we worship inappropriately. The idol of self once again rearing its ugly head. See, God's good and perfect plan is that each one of us sitting here today and standing here today bears his image in the world. You bear his image. That's a beautiful plan. It's a beautiful story. It doesn't change. It has never changed. It's the problem that we have with it. It confronts us in our stubbornness. It confronts us in our weird way in which we think we ought to do business. And it reminds us who actually is in charge. Because if we can remember that God is the Lord and that we have nobody before him, our life is then balanced. And then this beautiful story that he's given us and the fact that you bear his image works itself out the way it is supposed to in this world. Reflecting his goodness, reflecting his love, reflecting his peace, reflecting his joy, and doing all of those things that it's supposed to do in and through you, wherever you are, in whatever position you find yourself in. The Bible tells us, and I read from Paul in Philippians, is that to be complete in Christ is to die to yourself. To be complete in Christ is to die to yourself. I have to die to myself every day. And I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. But if I want to bear his image and I want to do things by his power, filled with his spirit in this world, I got to put myself in a position where I'm dying to myself every day. That's the challenge that I leave you with as we stand. If I could have the prayer people please take their places. I want to encourage you today. I know that this is a word that sometimes, I know it unsettled me. Maybe everybody else is really happy with it. I don't know. I want to challenge you though that 
if there's anything you got to give to the Lord, let's give it to him. Let's allow him to speak into your life in a way that he desires so that we can become each and every day working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the image bearers he has called us to be. Reflecting that light into the world and being salt and being light. It's a beautiful story. And you are his people. You are his people. You were bought at a price.